Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I just wanted to let you know before we get into the podcast, uh, it was a fantastic interview with Mike Isratel. Unfortunately, the quality of sound on his side was not amazing due to being in a gym, but the content was too good not to share uh, in future. We don't obviously want this to happen. We know this as a podcast is all about the sound quality. So we hope that you can bear with us this week. Cheers, guys, and enjoy the episode. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we are welcomed by Mike Isratel once again. Um, this We haven't had too much of a gap between our Q&A sessions, Mike, so it's quite nice. Yeah, it's strange to speak to you more than, more than uh, once every few months nowadays. <laughs> so busy. Yeah, it's good. And actually, I don't know if uh, something of interest is funny to me because obviously we talked about effective reps on the podcast and then very soon after that, Greg Knuckles released his... Plagiarized kind of... my kids. <laughs> Um, and if a few people asked, but you also did a public Facebook post, but I don't know if there's anything after seeing Greg's kind of input there, anything you wanted to kind of say after our last chat, anything new that's come up? Um, if not, then we can just refer people to your Facebook. Comment. Yeah. I don't know if so much new has come up as there's a couple things Greg didn't mention and not to his detriment, um, that could be also potential maybe not critiques of the effective rest method, but um, sort of grounding factors to take this out of the sky-high greatest thing ever and put it sort of back to earth. One of them that comes to mind that I've considered and write about a little bit in the hypertrophy book that we're writing is that lower twitch fibers do grow. They grow considerably, and um, cross-sectional fiber-type studies on bodybuilders have shown that all of their fibers are bigger. Furthermore, um, people imagine that the difference between fast and slow fibers uh, to be massive, like fast fibers are 10 times bigger or something. It turns out that's not really that true. Um, turns out they're twice as big. Now there's more uh, you know, motor units, the bigger motor units have more fibers attached to them, um, to the nervous uh, system component of the nerve. But, uh, you know, that's a little bit illusory way to look at it if you're looking at how much muscle can I stimulate. So to make a long story short, if you take a look at the effective reps concept and say all hypertrophy starts at five reps or close to failure or closer, you're missing out a lot of muscle activity that, as Greg pointed out, does actually occur with the biggest motor units uh, already, sub-maximum. Um, but there is an absolutely an increase in their activity and extension throughput through them as you get closer to failure, but that increase isn't from zero to a hundred. That increases probably from twenty to thirty percent to forty to sixty percent, which is meaningful, but not the end of the world. It, it doesn't make all the difference, just some. And also, we have to consider that slower fibers are active probably the entire time. So, kind of to put this like this, um, loads over thirty percent water end, and for sure loads over sixty percent water end. Uh, as soon as you lift the first rep, there's a considerable amount of potentially hypertrophyable fibers that are absolutely being stimulated um, and will grow. Like, uh, when you think about it, when you lift your 30RM, especially for upper body um, and for legs, uh, if it's your 30% 1RM plus your body mass, you're encountering loads through a range of motion. You don't normally encounter that much volume day-to-day. -day. Because we could say, like, well, that's just as, as light as day-to-day -day activity. I don't know, man. Like, I'll curl a milk jug 
right? But I'm not curling a 10-kilo milk jug for 60 total reps per day. And so the fibers responsible for curling milk jugs are, of course, hypertrophies from normal life and their maximum size. Because if you go to space and you get into microgravity, they atrophy and you turn into a wrinkled up piece of shit, for sure. And when you come back to normal gravity, you bulk up just back to your normal self. But that 30 to 60% 1RM range, not to failure, by the way, absolutely will result in some hypertrophy. Um, and by the way, all the studies that they've done on uh, you know, R&R method and seeing if getting closer or further away is, makes a difference, which are the studies for effective reps, which as Greg Knuckles eloquently showed, they're not nearly as conclusive as you might think. But even the studies, uh, and, and so this is a critique uh, Greg didn't make, uh, again, not to his detriment at all, because this shit was super, super awesome, uh, as always. Um, if you look into the studies, the studies that show that have the, the, more, the most effective reps, the groups that have the most effective reps, versus the ones that have fewer or very few effective reps, the groups that have the fewer effective reps still grow. They, they grow considerably. It's the effective reps, uh, effective reps groups just grow more. So when people say like all the hypertrophy occurs between reps 5 RIR and 0, that's just plainly false, right? So you could even, if you were thinking at a little bit more advanced level, uh, you know, we know for sure that 5 to 0 RIR is much more fatigue, right? Uh, Never mind stimulus to fatigue ratio, because it's, it's a little bit complicated. I can speak to that later. Um, it's much more fatiguing to train in that range, but it, you can potentially train in a range outside of 5RR so you get some hypertrophy with a very little fatigue. So potentially, you may have three sessions a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, let's say chest. Uh, you know, first session is heavy, uh, lots of effective reps, closer to failure. Second session is lighter, closer to failure, lots of effective reps, but also lots of other reps. And then the Friday session, could, you know, especially if you're more advanced and you have trouble with handling a ton of fatigue, the Friday session could be, you actually stop at 5 RIR for every single one. You're going to get very little fatigue out of a session like that, but you will get substantial faster fiber growth. And the cool thing about those kinds of sessions is you can probably repeat them multiple times throughout the week with almost no detriment uh, and, and for two reasons. One, they cause very little fatigue, so the, the SRA curves are short. And two, the slower fibers just recover faster anyway, right? So it's the slower fibers you're training and the ones that recover. So, you know, we, uh, it's very easy to get, um, uh, and I think I spoke to Jacob Skepis about this. You start to think, okay, you know, the biggest motor neurons are the ones that grow the most. And in your mind, they get translated to they're the only ones that grow. As in, you say in your, okay, the five reps short of failure are the most effective reps, the most effective of also other effective reps. And then you say, okay, there are only effective reps are five hours. And you do a couple of those loops where a difference of 70 30, which yeah, definitely train more of the 70 to the 30, turns a difference of 100 to zero. And then someone says, like, what RIR is that? Like, That's four RIR. They're like, you missed out on four effective reps. I'm like, mm, stay calm. Yes, I did, but I'm missing out on a tiny fraction. And if I'm considering that throughout the week, using uh, fatigue management properly, then there is absolutely something to be gotten from those not as effective reps. So, which is why when we look at like something like myo reps compared to conventional training, with lots of what you would call lead-in reps, like five sets of ten versus ten five 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 five, um, they you know it's by no means clear that you know the more effective reps one, even if you add another set of effective reps in there, it's not clear that that causes more hypertrophy. And it could be that the sets of ten actually cause a little bit more hypertrophy, even if you dip a little bit lower on the effective reps. So, uh, it's it's one of the situations where I think uh, you know Greg sort of said this in the best way 
that even if you look at the fact of reps literature, it's not so clear that it's like this huge dominance. Um, but I think it's a very important concept. It's a centrally important concept. But um, it says something like, hey, you know, this is important. You should do most of your sets should get lots of effective reps. And if you're leaving a ton of effective reps on the table all the time, your training is not that great. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, you know, all the other reps are effective too, just not as effective. And as soon as you start to see it like that, you get the proper balance of it. Yeah, I really like that. And it, it's reminding me of like, I don't know, you see builders or you see like tennis players and tennis players have like that one jacked arm. You think of like Nadal. I don't know if I just anecdotally like builders of like big traps because they're like lugging sure, around sure, all sure. this stuff. And maybe that's like 30% of their one RM. They're certainly not going to failure on that stuff. Or maybe sure. they're not even getting five reps from like a failure point, but uh, they yeah, hypertrophy. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that's not the most efficient way to hypertrophy. No. From a stimulus to fatigue perspective, there's some nuance there. Uh, one interesting thing is that, you know, I think we talked about this last time, the reps, you know, two RIR is probably, what I would say, the average best guess for the best stimulus to fatigue ratio. Yes. Anything north of two RIR is going to be really, really fatiguing, although more stimulative by a little bit, fatiguing by a lot of it. So if you look at, and again, this has been happening in the, the internet response to effective reps concept. If you do two RIR, people will say you're missing out on two effective reps. Like, yeah, that's on purpose, actually. I was recently involved in a discussion with a, a very nice gentleman um, about uh, adding sets versus adding intensity or adding load. And uh, he said that, you know, sets add lots of fatigue, uh, central nervous system fatigue, but they don't add that much more hypertrophy stimulus because you could just add reps and get closer to RIR within the same set. And I was like, you know, it's not really clear to me that if you take a program that has two sets, both at two RIR, compared to a program that has one set to absolute failure, which one of those is more fatiguing? What do you think, Steve? If someone had to say, hey, listen, you want to minimize fatigue, you only have two options. Two sets of two RIR on the squat or one set at failure. Which one do you take? Ah, uh, man. To be honest with compound movements that require a lot of gusto, I take two squats, yeah. two sets of RIR for sure. Yeah. And then you actually ask another question. Which one causes more muscle growth? The hilarious thing is that probably the two RIR two sets cause more muscle growth because when they compare how close to failure you get, how much more hypertrophy you get, the results is sort of unclear. Like two RIR versus zero RIR, you can't really say from the literature that for sure zero RIR is better. Like, I think theoretically it's better by a little bit, but um, but two sets of two RIR, gee, that's you know, remember the whole all the stuff about the number of hard sets, and that certainly qualifies as hard sets. Gee, that's starting to be a, a whole lot more stimulus there. And for the slower fiber types, way more so double the stimulus, double the number of leading rooms. So it's one of those situations where I think if you really abuse the effective reps concept, you're like, all right, you got to do first set's got to be two failure, and the second set has to be relatively short rest, so we get as many effective reps ratio to as as few as possible lead-in reps. And then you end up getting um, a situation where the training is abnormally fatiguing and not under and under stimulative. And if you want to make it stimulative enough, it gets really crazy fatiguing because, you know, five sets to two failure. Maybe it's not a workout you can repeat in two days. Mm-hmm. Um, but two RIR, you can repeat every 72 hours and all of a sudden you're jacked. So, again, one of those situations where the concept of abusing the RIR, and, and especially you and I talked about this last time. I don't want to be dead horse. The last thing I'll say, um, counting effective reps as just literally just mathematically arithmetically counting them like okay this set had three this set had four this set's better like it's just fun work like that it's just because we don't know from five rir 
to zero are how much effect each repetition has. First of all, uh, we have a guess, but it's probably a bell curve. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. It's not a bell curve. It's an S curve, but it goes like that. And, and then so like, you know, some of the reps are much more hypertrophic than the others. Um, and then uh, with that's relevant, but also what's relevant is fatigue. And the fatigue uh, operates not an S curve, but an exponential like this. So when you get the intersection of those two curves, it turns into a pretty complex relationship where, you know, you can't simply, the reps are not additive linearly. You're not saying, well, two effective reps plus two here. It's no, no, no. It depends on which place they were in the RIR. Like two, the two reps you do from, uh, you know, zero, uh, one RIR, zero RIR, those two reps, they, they don't add linearly to five and four. That's not how you compare it at all. Um, and people are doing that, uh, you know, as I think Eric Helms pointed out, people seek a simplicity sometimes in a, and I'm, I'm like arithmetic approach to training. Mm. Uh, it's just not there. I, I remember debating this in kind of terms. This is back in my earlier before the arguing to convince years. Um, I would mostly for entertainment purposes debate strict hit advocates, you know, high intensity training. And I had a guy tell me, um, <laughs> one set to failure is the only non arbitrary way to train. Every other number of sets after that. And or any number of reps far from failure is random, arbitrary, and thus logical. And I was like, "You're pretending that there is a logical structure here that doesn't exist. Like you're you're making up the answer, and you're saying anything that's not the answer is is off." So it would be lovely, unbelievable if effective reps could be scaled linearly. Oh my god, are you kidding me? Did you could fucking write an Excel spreadsheet that calculates the shit so goddamn fast? Link, you would rate every single workout ever done on objectively on hypertrophic stimulus. It would be amazing. Unfortunately, I don't think training is that much more complex, but it's more complex. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, unfortunately, it's quite nuanced. Um, and yes. I think if you were going to really simplify it, it's like your training's got to be hard. Like the, uh, that really simplifies it, but people get really like stressed out with these things. It's kind of like if you're going in there and you're taking sets and they're very hard, like pretty damn hard, you're challenging your muscle, things are slowing down, then you're doing good work in terms of that totally. set was effective and you've got some effective reps in there. Totally. And if you're doing a set that's super fucking easy on all counts, you don't pretend you're growing much. But, but then again, like, I don't know who didn't know that. Yeah, I take that back. A lot of people don't. A lot of people would like to, it's the same science crowd, us, that, you know, if you see a study that says, oh, you can train pretty easy and still get strong, they'd be like, oh, great. <laughs> oh, these idiots going to failure. It's funny, though. I will say bodybuilders with their super failure training and their drop sets and their make the muscle feel the weight instead of the uh, absolute weight pre-exhaust uh they won the effective reps argument that's all for them you know like if you do uh pre-exhaust your quads locally with extensions and then you go do squats of the squat now becomes more effective reps for the quads because it's less centrally limiting more peripherally or locally limiting i mean like that's that's a really good takeaway from effective reps it's like yeah pre-exhaust is a thing and there's still science-based folks who say pre-exhaust is stupid because of dumbass EMG studies. It's, it's just the point of training is to just zap your EMG, you know, zap your muscular neural activity as much as possible. It's not the point of training. So it's it's an interesting interesting thing we take into account. Like, uh, there can't be any religion with science. There's no mix there. It has to be like, what does the science say? Okay, that seems reasonable. <clears throat> what do the best athletes do? That's also got to be taken into account. Where is the reasonable intersection of those two things? So we don't get caught off guard, completely ignoring the best people to ever walk the face of the earth as far as being jacked. And also that we're not doing 
things that they do, which are completely scientifically literate and moronic, which they do plenty of. We just have to know enough science and know enough real world to fall between the two somewhere. And then we can be relatively assured that at least we're taking our best guess. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And actually, I guess we had uh, one question come in that was related to something you spoke about there by uh, Callum Ruff. And he basically asked, um, and that's to do with two RER being kind of the best stimulus to fatigue ratio in terms of reps and reserve. And his question was essentially, why would we ever train with any other reps and reserve if that provides the best stimulus to fatigue ratio? Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear your kind of response to that. Yeah, because towards the end of a mesocycle, you're accumulating fatigue so much anyway that you're going to short out in one or two weeks. Like your accumulative fatigue is rising and it's going to hit your MRV soon. So you might as well go closer to failure in order to get uh, where you need to go. Uh, so because you can accumulate all that fatigue, no problem, and then you get a delayed supercompensation effect whereby you get more raw stimulus if you go closer to failure. And then uh, what you end up doing is uh, you drop that fatigue anyway. Uh, and then you get all the best of both worlds. For example, in the last week of training, um, imagine stopping all of your sets too short uh, of failure. Someone could ask, this is honestly this is probably one of my best thought experiments to do. Is do, so Imagine you're doing something in the gym you think is right, and someone asks you like the simplest question about it. If you don't have an answer, you probably have some thinking to do. So someone's like, hey, why are you stopping all your reps too short of failure? And you're like, Stimulus to fatigue ratio, man. I want to accumulate too much fatigue, get as much stimulus as I can for it. They're like, why do you care about fatigue? You're like, because I got to train hard next week. They're like, no, you don't. You have a deal next week. They're like, fuck. Fuck. You're right. And then they go, it doesn't make sense to just pour everything you have into training this week. And, you know, within reason. Uh, and then you'll be good to go. And you're like, huh. Yep. Yep, it sure does. So then it's okay to go much closer to failure. Um, what I would say, though, is this. If it's like week two or week one of a four to six week progression, and you go in like one RIR, zero RIR, just not thinking ahead. Like, are you getting more absolute stimulus? Yeah, totally. Per set, for sure. Um, what does that do to the next week and the next week and the next week? Eh, nothing great. Um, and I also have an answer for the opposite question, just in case that wasn't asked. If two RIR is the optimal, so to speak, uh, higher, best SFR, what, uh, what about three or four RIR? Why would you ever do that? Well, that's because the time you spend in a mesocycle, the longer you spend in a mesocycle, the more hypertrophy you get, the better your stimulus to, or sorry, the uh, accumulation to deload ratio. And a lot of times you can get really, really good stimuli when you do, uh, you know, uh, when you're new to exercises, three or four RRs, really good amount of stimulus for you. Um, and it might actually have the best stimulus to fatigue ratio at three or four RR because of the novelty of the exercise. But as the exercise becomes less novel, you have to milk it out to get a better stimulus. And also, because the action isn't as novel anymore, its fatigue uh, component isn't as high. Because, like, you know, if you do a set of leg extensions, you haven't done leg extensions in six months, that's a lot of fatigue because you're you're really highly damaged because your uh, motor units are not used to those angles and forces and things like that, so you get a ton of damage. So there's a way in which three or four of the RIR at the beginning of meso actually is close to optimal. It also it allows to lead into a really productive mesocycle uh, whereby you get a lot of great two RIR training, used to the exercises and everything sort of well. It's kind of building momentum. So basically, you can start a mesocycle at three or four RIR because you don't need to go any harder, and you want to keep fatigue super low so you can set yourself up for as much awesome training in the middle of the mesocycle. And you end a mesocycle with zero one RIR because there's no point in holding back because you're going to deload anyway. 
And then the middle of the mesocycle is, you know, roughly 2RR or so, where you get uh, your best stimulus to fatigue ratio. But unfortunately, because of the overload principle, you can't maintain there forever because cumulative fatigue starts rising. So Nice. Yeah, really well answered. I think you explained that better than I did. I kind of had a, a back and forth with him and I was like, I want to, I'll ask and see how similar this is to me. But I was basically along the lines of when you are going to the one or not reps and reserve, that's typically combined with MRV. So you can't add sets because that was kind of his idea was why can't you just add more sets of two reps and reserve, but there gets to a point which is your MRV where you, you can't just keep adding. So you, you might as totally. well combine it with pushing all the way to one or not RAL. So totally. I will also say that there may be adaptations in parts of the uh, muscle that you can hit with zero RIR, one RIR, which you can't get with two RIR. There might be a difficulty of training components independent of other components where pushing to the limits, uh, for example, may lead to more... Um, acquisition of myonuclear domain space by satellite cell activation incorporation, you might not actually be able to activate maximum satellite cell pools with 2RIR. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio is really good. There's a certain amount of raw stimulus magnitude like that you just can never reach. And thus, you always getting your quote-unquote best gains relative to the fatigue, but doing even more and even more and even more sets of 2RIR might end up uh, plateauing your ability to gain and going 0RIR and 1RIR might get you these new gains with very expensive gains, right? But um, they're not, uh, you know, uh, possible to get potentially, potentially with 2RIR training. So that really over-the-top, really maximal stimulus is something you might seek, uh, you know, every, you know, once a mass cycle or so, and it might be worth your while because at that point, uh, you know, there's something just more sets of 2RIR is just out of their reach. It's like, what's the analogy? Uh, climbing trees to get to the moon? Yeah, you can go higher, uh, and climbing trees sure as hell doesn't cost you a lot of energy. Relative to the energy you expend, you get pretty high because you just eat calories, climb trees, and it's easy. You know, there's no rocket fuel, which costs like a million dollars a fucking uh, rocket or whatever, and it's horribly inefficient, but only a rocket can get you to the moon. You can't climb your way to the moon. So 2RIR may be an awesome way to train most of the time, but there may be some really, really extreme adaptations, which we all need to be our best, that it just can never reach. Um, and anyone who's ever trained to failure or one to failure knows that the, sort of the kind of disruption you can feel locally is a really this, there's not a number of 2RIR sets that get you there. <laughs> um, so I think there's something to be potentially said for that. Though, if you make the discovery that you never actually have to go to failure, fuck, man, I'll be the first person on that. Cool. Awesome. Uh, we'll get to the next question, which is from Brett Freeman. And he has asked, do you have examples of where the research doesn't support the outcome, but anecdotally seems true? Jesus. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, training frequency and hypertrophy. The biggest people in the world train most major muscle groups once a week. Some of them twice a week, although that is, I guess, the vast majority. Almost no one trades it three times a week. There's any any bit of jazz. Uh, 
And the research says that the more your training frequency is, the higher training frequency is per week, asymptotically. You know, two's a lot better than one, three's a little better than two, four maybe a little bit better than three, but still some detection there, and then five is sort of a wash, but maybe for small recovery, fast recovery muscle groups even better than four, so on and so forth. That's what the research says, that all those are better, and the high frequency is better, but when you look at people who are the most jacked, they actually do the complete opposite of that. Um, how can we explain this? There's a very distinct possibility that... Um, the culture of lifting uh, that we have is so prone to leaving it all in the gym, like going really close to failure, multiple, multiple sets, you know, 15 to 20 sets per session for a muscle. You actually can't do workouts like that with high frequency. It doesn't work. So guys will sort of assume this is the case. This is what a training session looks like. Tons of sets to failure and 15 to 20 on the shifts. And then they'll say, okay, insofar as this is a unit of training, a session, what is the optimal number of these sessions I can fit into the week? And the answer is one. <laughs> because if you try to fit two, you just overreach in a week and a half, and you're like, well, and, and you, you hear bigger guys say, like, yeah, I tried high-frequency training, but I couldn't recover. And they're like, what, what does that mean to you? And they're like, well, like 30 total sets of biceps a week. They're like, oh, Jesus Christ, of course you can't do that in two sessions. Um, so then maybe that artifact is that the assumption, that base assumption – uh, maybe erroneous, and then they carry it forward, and thus they discover uh, that they can't do it. Um, uh, what's that called in, in mathematics? A local optimum. Uh, like, you know, you basically have, like, the highest mountain ever is just over this peak, and you're just in front of another little smaller mountain, and you climb up to the top of your little small mountain, and like, well, this is as good as it gets. Like, maybe you should climb down the other hill and go back up. Like, not, not, I'm at the top. So, um, maybe. Maybe that's the case. Maybe the case is that uh, even with relatively normal training frequency or relatively normal volumes, uh, 5 to 10, maybe 8 to 12 sets per session, larger athletes that remember, you know, when you and I squat, we have a certain amount of central nervous system disruption from that. Uh, so requires a certain amount of central nervous system output, a certain amount of axial fatigue, a certain amount of cardiovascular fatigue, et cetera, a certain amount of cytokines released with bloodstream from essentially screaming muscles. Uh, when somebody like, you know, Roly Winkler works out, I'm going to say double or triple that shit. You know, if you and I had to do his workout, we would actually just die. But he might be like pretty close to dead. Like today I was squatting after doing leg presses and I had to lay down for five minutes after squats. I've never seen anyone who weighs 120 pounds have to lay down after squats. But some of those people don't lay down after marathon runs when I was simply dying. So it might be a thing that while the stimulus component of training scales relatively linearly with how big you are, the fatigue component scales uh, exponentially. Nice. So that when you ask, when you get people who are recreationally trained who weigh 65 kilos to squat uh, three, four, five times a week, they can do it. If you get people who weigh 120 kilos to do that uh, and they know how to squat, they may simply be unsustainable for them. Now, maybe, uh, so that that's... I think both are happening, if I had to guess. Uh, I'm not so interested in guessing about this thing, so we honestly just don't know. But if I had to like put money on it, actually, I'm in Las Vegas and I don't gamble. How fucking Jewish is that? <laughs> so, so you know, I don't gamble, but if I had to, I would say both are happening. That's my best guess. I would say people, yes, they train with too much volume per session. Yes, they train too close to failure, etc. 
if they stop doing that shit, they could do more sessions. Do I think that means that Roly Winkler could train chess six times a week? No. I just don't think that's the case. Instead of training once a week, could he train it twice? Yeah, I think so. I think some of the guys may be able to train the smaller muscle groups three times, biceps, without so on and so forth. But I think at the top level of acting pros, their disruption of the muscles is so insane, their systemic fatigue is so insane, that I think it really comes down to maybe two to three, two to four times per week would be the highest training frequencies those folks can sustain. I don't honestly think uh, it's not my best bet that folks like that could survive like everyday training. Mm. I just don't think that's, that's really likely. Cool. Yeah, I was even surprised when I saw that you were upping your training frequencies to like three, four, and even considering like almost daily um, because you are compared like the stronger than every lift uh, like listener we probably have or maybe i'm not crediting the listener audience enough but yeah, uh, you're, you're pretty damn strong so to see that i mean obviously you're doing it very calculated and it's not something you've done yet so we'll see well, if see, you I survive did, i did quads today <laughs> yeah well so i did quads today right um it's a three my current split is three quad sessions per week right my session for quads is six sets of six sets of quads. Uh, no i take that back Microcycle one, five sets of quads, three sets of leg presses or pendulum squats, same shit, and um, two sets of squats. I was fucked up. Like most people in bodybuilding wouldn't even consider that like oh, that's like the first exercise you do five sets, right? So when when you say that oh like even like listen, he's really big, he does such high frequency. For me, three times a week for quads is a lot, and I have to do much, much smaller chunks. And eventually, I'll work up to six to eight sets per workout, but like that's it. For hamstrings, five sets average per session three times a week is the most I can do without getting just consistent overlapping doms all the time. If you said I had to do six sets of hamstrings three times a week, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm just going to rip my my hamstrings are going to come apart. Um, so uh, Jared Feather, much more fast twitch dominant than me, um, he doesn't do well at all with back, chest, quads or hams, three session workouts. He actually can't do it. I think two is his limit. It's not difficult to imagine someone twice Jared's size, just as fast which and most of the people twice Jared's size are very fast which it doesn't, it doesn't strain credulity to think that those folks one and a half times per week is the most you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not so uh, yeah I, I, and also I will say like I can't sustain these frequencies indefinitely. I have to do it for a couple of mesos and then back off. And again, special sports supplements are a thing. Yeah. Trained with such high frequencies, I take more special sports supplements because otherwise I would fucking fall apart. Like Mr. Tinder. So uh, that's definitely a constraining factor for sure. Cool. Awesome. Um, actually, one question I had um, that I don't know if it, it doesn't really relate to anything we've said, but it's a question I have had come up now and then, and I've never actually got it out on the podcast, and I haven't really heard it talked about much, but I think it's it relates to the thermic effect of food um, and the different macros, and that it's kind of, as far as I'm concerned, and I think a lot of the listeners are concerned, they think of it as common knowledge that protein has the highest thermic effect of feeding, like 25%, and then people will then talk about how, say, you had 100 calories of protein, you only actually absorb 75% of those and I remember I'd heard I think twice it's come up on RP plus now where you and James have gone back and forth and been like they take this into consideration when they say tell you it's four calories um, but that doesn't seem to be 
common knowledge within the even in the evidence-based field. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk to that. To quote Donald Trump, wrong, <laughs> wrong. Um, oh, dear, he got a quote on the podcast. <laughs> how far I've seen quoting Donald Trump. So um, my understanding is that uh, thermic effects averages are taken into account when we publish uh, the calories. So when I was an undergraduate, we learned that depending on the amino acid, uh, the unadjusted thermic for the unadjusted calorie effect. Um, is uh, so, so protein when they do like a bomb calorimeter, right? When they just blow food up and see how much they burn it and see how much calorie comes out, it's actually like 5.7, 5.8 calories per gram of protein. And then you're like, what the fuck? And for carbs, it's like four point something, and for fats, it's like nine point something. But because uh, fats and carbs have really low thermic effects, it just goes down to four and nine. And protein has a big thermic effect, so it goes all the way from five point something, which is a great way, way far from four, goes all the way down to four. The thermic effect of protein, as far as I know, that could be mistaken, but I doubt it, uh, is already taken into consideration uh, with uh, with that uh, four calories. So I don't. I think it's great news because you don't have to do any extra math. Yeah. Bad news is you've been eating double the protein. You're like, ah, it's cool. We're yeah. <laughs> which is what is like the common is like oh i'm on a diet but i'm hungry i'll just increase my protein because that will have the smallest impact and it doesn't have as many calories so whereas in reality it, it would be lovely that that was the case but like you said it seems like it's already taken into account cool um so we had actually i thought this was a very interesting question uh from brett freeman again uh he said how to transition from volume landmark approach to a more static set volume due to time constraints Train closer to failure than normal. Progress with weights and thus RIRs. And get ready to deload a bit more often. Uh, and that's it. So, you know, if you can scale volume, you could start a four RIR. If you can't scale volume, you might as well start a two or three RIR at the beginning of the meso. And uh, because if someone can say, you know, be optimal if you just did another set and didn't go as close to failure. They're like, that's nice, motherfucker. I don't have time for another set. And then if you don't, say, okay, what's the best way to get still a lot of stimulus? Like, you almost have to think of it this way. We have a certain amount of time to spend in the gym. Now it's not a lot. How hard are we going to train while we're in there? Uh, pretty hard. Harder than normal. Another way to think of it is this. We have very limited time to add a ton of fatigue, right? Uh, thus, we're not going to add as much fatigue. Thus, we can have approaches that don't have as good of a stimulus to fatigue ratio because we need just more raw stimulus, uh, which is one of the uh, things we'll be introducing in the book, uh, term raw stimulus magnitude. It's like how much muscle growth does this cause per rep per set? Who cares about fatigue? In a sense, you have to care less about fatigue when you have constrained gym time because look, look, you're not going to hit your MRV. It's just not going to happen. So how are you get close enough to hitting your MRV is going closer to failure. Um, and progressing in intensity steadily so that uh, you continue to get closer and closer to failure. And, and thus, uh, uh, was it Brett Freeman that asked the SFR question as well with two IR? Or was that no, that was someone else. Oh, interesting. But, but yeah, so that, that's the sort of the deal is like, yeah, the two IR is optimal, uh, you know, the constraints, of course, and some nuance, um, if you have all day to be at the gym, but you don't. So now you, you're also seeing like 
how much fatigue can I generate with only an hour in the gym? Mm-hmm. Nothing that concerns you as much. So then I need more bang for my buck. Hey, sweet. Well, there you go. Get closer to failure and you'll have to progress. You'll probably have to make more intensity jumps um, because you won't accumulate much fatigue between the weeks, which is cool because you can make bigger intensity jumps because the fatigue uh, from more sets isn't in the way. Does that mean you'll get better as good of results? No, because intensity progressions are inferior to volume progressions in all likelihood for hypertrophy. Better for strength is just sweet. Um, but, uh, you know, it does a good job of mitigating what's not there. What would be erroneous is to make no adjustments. But can you imagine, like, you're, like, three or four RIR, and you're taking, like, long rest breaks, and someone's like, so what do you need to leave the gym? They're like, up in 15 minutes. And, like, shouldn't you, like, work harder? You're like, no, I want to manage your team. Manage it for what? You're only in the gym four hours a week. You're like, huh, that's a good point. So so that would be my answer. Go close to failure from the start and uh, allow yourself to auto-regulate uh, RIR stability or RIR jumps week to week to week. And if that auto-regulation is good, if you do a good job of it, the result will be increase more weight on the bar faster. Cool. Yeah, I think I don't know if some people might even find it where I think I've had it with clients where we've started out minimum effective volume, three to four reps in reserve, and they are recovered enough to add more, but they don't have sufficient time. So we've kind of capped their sets like their MRV for time is up. So then just capping sets and then progress. You can only progress via reps or set or uh, intensity and RER drops. So it kind of works itself out, I guess. If you've got a time limit, you've got a time limit. 100%. 100%. You just have to do your best within the time yeah. lot. Cool. Uh, next question is from Benjamin Turgeon. He has said, Hi, Dr. Mike. What are your thoughts on maximum muscular potential for naturals such as Casey Butt's equation? Should we take them as hard limits or are they too imprecise? Casey Butt is a funny name. No love lost. Um, it's cool uh, to look at and fun to look at. All based on averages. There's a very big leeway between individuals, even taking that into account. Um, what I think those equations can do is um, make people sane when they're pretty jacked and they think they're not, and you just run them through the equation. You're like, dude, you're like five pounds off of the biggest this equation would ever produce you can. And they're like, oh, I thought it was a useless piece of shit. Like, no, you're fucking awesome. You know, there's a ton of people using gear, especially in the United Kingdom where the shit is legal, right? And, you know, you go into a gym, like, well, I'm at um, City Athletic right now. I'm, like, maybe halfway to the biggest person here. And, like, most normal gyms, I'm, like, looked at as a fucking monster. And now I'm, like, oh, my God, I don't even lift. You can imagine somebody who's natural walking into this place and you're, like, fuck, what am I even doing? Uh, well... You're on nothing, and everyone appears on like the kids just like literally like a dead horse somewhere they've extracted all the hormones from. Every day they kill a new horse, right? So, you know, it's it's really easy to lose track of that. So those equations can be relatively calming. I think. Um, on the other hand, those equations are not a guarantee that you will get that muscle. Genetics for muscle buildings, maximum muscular potential, not everyone can reach. You'll get that muscular if you have really good genetics. If you have exceptional genetics and you really know what you're doing, 
you'll get better than those equations by some small to moderate margin. But a lot of us will never even touch those equation predictions because we're natural and we also just don't have the greatest genetics for bodybuilding, which uh, as a public service announcement is 100% okay, and here's why. Bill Gates, what's his bodybuilding genetics? I believe the correct answer is who gives a shit? Certainly not. Right? How good of a person are you? Doesn't matter. I know a ton of jack people who are scum of the earth. I wouldn't leave my wallet out in front of them. They're my friends. Right? So it's not a big deal at all. But if you look at these natty equations and you think, I've got to get here, but you just never had the genetics to be able to hit it to begin with, it could be really disappointing in the same way that it could be enlightening if you do have the genetics. So, you know, it's like anything with an average. You may do everything you can to get there and never get there, or you may be able to train for two or three years and surpass it. Um, so I think it's cool to look at those numbers and sort of be like, oh, you're like, this is interesting. Uh, especially cool to look at it after a couple of years of training. Um, what you don't want to do is look at it and be like, okay, this is my goal. Like, gee, you know, I don't know if it's not really a goal because your genetics play such a huge role and your lifestyle, et cetera, such a huge role. So I think they're, you know, they're, they're interesting to know. Um, and uh, again, one of the uses for them that's not a good idea is a client asks you, like, how muscular can I get? If you give them the output of those equations, if they have good genetics, they'll be pleasantly surprised. If they have average slash good genetics, they'll be right on target. If they have below average genetics, which a lot of people do, precisely half of us have below average genetics, by the way, that's how statistics work, um, they will be perennially and potentially crushing these. So uh, I think a lot of people look at those equations in uh, those two ways, you get sort of the same same kind of incels look at those two equations. One incel just got to his equation. He looks at everyone who's bigger, and they're like, not natty for sure. For sure on drugs, which is wrong. Uh, and then the other kind of incel who has shitty genetics looks at it and is like, just develops a deep hatred for himself and everything around him because he's not even close to being anywhere near him. So interesting can be perspective-giving, but uh, fundamentally... You do, you know, you do your thing, you eat, you train, you sleep as best you can, and then you find out how big you can get. Uh, there's no other way around it, because the equation can give you a real rough average, but um, it's not going to give you a precise number. Well, I'll, 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 here's how it can be useful. Let's say you're a certain height, certain bone, uh, width, so on and so forth, and uh, you start out weighing 120 pounds. And you ask me, I wonder how big I can get naturally. It's going to give you the answer. The proper way to read it is probably like somewhere between 160 and 200, right? That doesn't mean you make 200 your goal. Uh, that also doesn't mean you make 160 your goal. But you could say, like, yeah, you know, it's very likely that I'll make 160. Let's see. I just eat and train, and that's sort of going to be my expectation. If I make 160, I'll be pretty happy. I'll allow myself to be pretty happy. And then once you get to 160, after five years, You'd be pleasantly surprised that you continue on it, and eventually you get to your biggest at 170, and you're like, wow, this is awesome. Uh, what it can inoculate you from, these equations, is this wild unrealism, which I think is, as soon as people start looking, if, if you're the kind of person that's intelligent enough to look at an equation for your answers, you're probably more intelligent than, than this kind of person, which I'm about to describe. If someone who sees, like, uh, Flex Lewis at 212, and be like, you know, but, uh, that's my goal. Like, I, 
Steve, I was going to say you have no idea, but you have every idea. How many people that are on the internet that think that their realistic future is Mr. Olympia? Mm. And it's fucking insane. There's like 12 people ever that have been Mr. Olympia. These people are like, I'm going to do it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's nice to think that, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, it can be really good to look at the equation and be like, you know what? Let me just try to get here first, the low end of it. See where I go. And you may be pleasantly surprised. Like when, um, uh, back when I was natural, <laughs> fuck it. Yeah. Back when I was natural, I exceeded all those equations. I actually have relatively small bone structure. I'm not very tall. Um, and I had a rough semblance of abs at 210 pounds body weight at five cents, um, which is pretty fucking sweet. Uh, so I was over the, the average, but like, I, I, I never saw those equations. I just trained for like six years really hard and ate pretty well and ta-da. So seeing, I'm sure as hell isn't going to help you in any way physiologically. It's not going to change how you plan your training at all. Um, but it can give you like, again, like just to reiterate this long rant, uh, the most important point is look at the range, take the bottom end. That's a fine rough goal to give yourself. And if you're above that goal, great. So that's awesome. Uh, and, uh, if you have aspirations, um, it, because, you know, these, uh, substances are legal in the United Kingdom, I can't actually say this on this podcast. If you desperately want to be 200 pounds lean and that's your life goal for whatever fucking reason, and you find out the equation tops you out at 180 pounds, you know that you should get at least two, 160 to 180. You do that for a couple more years to make sure you really melt it out. Let's say you get to 177 and then it's, you get like a pound of muscle in the next year. Ooh, then it's time to take the plunge because you are not going to get to 200 drug free. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, at least those equations can sort of help you do that. But I will say you don't actually need those equations for that because you can see the asymptotic rate of gains anyway at some point. But maybe you need to think like, oh, but if the asymptote, maybe if I, maybe if my eating is wrong, maybe my sleep is wrong, maybe if I find the right way to train, it can just go back like up like this, which can happen with some things. But if you look at those equations, it's like, look, you're at the top end or in the middle end of the shit already. Like if you really have this goal to get where you need to go, it's going to take extra help. So that could be a cool thing. Fantastic. Yeah, I really like your point on do your best job and you'll get what you get. And this is why I think like the emphasis on just in actually enjoying the process is just so important because so many people give up because they don't enjoy it and they have false expectations. And then they don't get anywhere near to where they could potentially even get. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I don't really know. There's uh, a couple of reasons to train to get more jacked outside of enjoyment uh, of the process. And uh, enjoyment of the process occupies probably 80% of the happiness that you'll get out of that. The rest of the 20% is all 20 other factors combined. I'm trying to think in my life what it is being jacked has gotten me other than enjoyment. Um, people in elevators say things like, oh my God, like you're really big. You may like that sort of thing. I'll tell you, it, gets, it doesn't get old. It gets monotonous after about a year of hearing it. You're like, yeah, I've heard that before. Um, if you're trying to do it to get laid, it doesn't work. Um, work on being lean, being a nice person, and go look up like mystery method and the rules of the game, my style. Nice person, way Mike. Never be nice. You know the bad guys always get the girls. Poor uh, advice. Yeah, really. did I say be nice? <laughs> uh, yeah, don't necessarily be nice, but be confident and Anyway, look into the psychology of pickup because it's actually a very well-studied area. It's not very controversial. It works. I read one so of those books. Get, 
Yeah. <laughs> when it, I was young. Yeah, there you I go. couldn't well, do any yeah. of the tips. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, way too shy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a scumbag. Yeah. Uh, but even, you know, there's other ways to play it. Like, um, so for example, like, even if you're super shy, um, like if you brag and you don't even believe yourself, um, it's just, it's just a bad look. So even if you're not outgoing, you can take a lot of those tips and mold them to how you sort of conduct yourself. Um, in other words, even if you're shy, right? Like, let's say a girl that you like texts you. If you immediately text her back, you're kind of a chump. Don't do that, right? It doesn't, you don't have to be shy or not shy. You just not do dumb shit, right? Then people say shit like, follow your heart. Like, don't follow your heart. If you want to get laid, don't follow your heart. It just lies to you all the time. If you want to find the girl of your dreams, follow your heart. That's nice. But if you just want to get laid, don't do that. Um, then again, your muscles have very little to do with that. I'm pretty sure my being jacked has never gotten laid. My being jacked has never even had anything to do with me finding the girl of my dreams. My wife, Crystal, legitimately, no joke, but I'm pretty sure she's okay with me saying this. I like just be gnarly, ripped, and big. I'll be like, honey, check this out. And she'd be like, that's nice, baby. And just walk off. I'm like, what the fuck? But she legitimately, if I was any other size, she just wouldn't care. I'm like, really? How the hell does that work? You know? So it won't get you there. Um, I don't know what else, what else is it going to get you? Um, I don't know, maybe. If you like intimidating other people, just take Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu for 10 years. Then you won't have to intimidate anyone because you'll know that you can fuck people up as soon as shit hits the fan. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. Like, what else is there other than like, to me, 80% of enjoyment at least is like noticing that you're hitting little mini PRs, feeling the mind-muscle connection and exercise, pulling your shirt off after workout and seeing your lats just be like, ah, like. You know, the Roly Winkler, the, the Kuwait uh, oxygen magic mirror, you know, that the mirror they have that they take pictures in. Like, that's the core of bodybuilding right there. Like, I don't even give a fuck about the Mr. Olympia. I'm a Roly Winkler fan because that magic mirror exists. Because those pictures are like, <gasps> what is that? Like, every one of us has our own little magic mirror, even if it's in your own head or if it's a shitty bathroom mirror. That's where all the love is. That's where all the magic is. If you don't like that part, fucking Christ, just pick something else lift weights two to three times a week to be in good shape go ride motorcycles or something become a pickup artist get a real job and a career and a loving family that's not way better than bodybuilding for any other purpose that love the sport so 100 percent, actually that leads into another question uh, and that was from let me just find the name because i've remembered the question but not the name so it's from omar and he asked how would you train to optimize health because you kind of touched on health there and i think a lot of the listeners might think that maximizing hypertrophy is still coincides with maximizing health but i think it, it doesn't necessarily so i'd love to sure. hear your kind of comments on that mike yeah yeah so to maximize health i would use a lot of weight i would say that um, you need to find uh, a body mass index that's in the low end of the healthy statistical range and stay there uh, if i was to be optimally healthy myself i'm five six i would weigh between 120 and 150 pounds wow. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, my resting heart rate would be like five beats per minute. <laughs> um, so, uh, first of all, lose a lot of weight. Second of all, train two to four times a week with mostly compound heavy basics, full range of motion, um, and uh, train in various rep ranges, mostly the strength and hypertrophy range. Really, five to 20 reps is totally fine. Do a pretty decent amount of cardiovascular uh, activity because that's very, very health-promoting, and eat a very healthy overall balanced diet, get lots of sleep, don't stress out too much, and there you go, there's health. So, uh, you know, the more muscle you add on top of that, if you still do all of those things and add muscle, that's cool. 
but it reduces your longevity to some extent. Um, probably not your quality of life during the time that you're alive, but it will reduce your longevity, which is, you know, health span, so to speak. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, you can still do the core of your hypertrophy training, but just getting much bigger than your average size without training is probably, you could have been doing more cardiovascular work and getting way more healthy. Even drug-free lifters that gain, you know, when you are in a hypercaloric state, it is deleterious to your health if you start at a normal body weight. If you start at a subnormal body weight, hypercaloric condition saves your ass. Like we get an anorexic in a hospital, hypercaloric is way healthier than anything else. But if you're at even normal body weight, which means statistically normal, which is really light, um, any hypercaloric front, any pushes into hypercaloric, Every hour of hypercaloric activity is a blood lipid profile, blood glucose profile. Um, that is not optimal for your health. It's just not. Um, to put this in perspective, there's a drug called metformin, which lowers your blood glucose level at any given time. It's uh, now had enough research about it where it's pretty competent to say that it's actually a life extension drug. It literally just makes you live longer. It makes animals live longer, humans. Uh, probably one of the best ways it does this is it just lowers the amount of sugar you have in your blood. And you ask yourself a question, what the hell am I doing eating 650 grams of carbs a day? You're degrading your lifespan. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Is it by much? No. Is it, you know, stay away from cocaine and alcohol? Is that good? Yes, totally. Stay away from anabolic steroids and getting to 280? Yeah, super good idea. I say this as sitting at 240 on my way up, hilariously. Um, but yeah, you know, like if you're 200 or 180 jacked and relatively lean, you're like, I'm totally healthy. That's completely true. But if you ask me to say, you know, what would be, what could I do to be healthier? Training wouldn't change a whole lot. I would say do more cardiovascular training, less weight training. More of a 50-50, 70-30 split. Most more cardiovascular, less weight training. But lose weight, lose weight. And if you get lighter, like if you, Steve, weighed like 160 or something like that, um, you know, your resting blood pressure and heart rate and stuff would be like baffling. Like, oh my god, like I'm hypertensive. Like I stand up and pass out. Um, your heart beats once every two seconds or some shit like that. Okay, like wow, like when you go to the doctor and he's like, Well, it's the healthiest person I ever seen here. <laughs> so uh it's one of those things that it really um it's uh maybe underappreciated. Uh, in our in our field, definitely appreciated yeah. because BMI doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it sure as hell does. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm jacked and BMI tells me I'm fat. It's wrong about that, but it is telling you that you're bigger than that, which is good that it's muscle and not fat which makes a difference but it doesn't make all the difference just some of it. i remember broderick saying i think when he came over and did his uk seminar he said like one of the biggest health concerns that steroids end up bringing is just you're so big and that in Absolutely. itself is a big problem so Absolutely. yeah that made me Absolutely. like it just kicked me up the ass and i was like okay actually yeah i understand this better now that makes good sense yeah cool um time for one more question one more, let's do one more. Cool. So Andrew actually asked, uh, he asked about muscle loss when prepping on anabolics. Kind of asked about percentage of body weight loss per week. Can you go faster when you're on anabolics? Um, because obviously you've got that support there versus a natural. Uh, does it change the game? Yeah, you can get away with more. I will tell you this. Um, in order to get away with faster, faster losses per week on anabolics, you have to take more anabolics to make sure that you don't lose muscle. More anabolics drive your hunger up higher and they improve feed efficiency even more, which means you have to eat even less food. They also uh, reduce thyroid production. 
which means you start to eat even less food and then you become very fucking hungry, very low energy, and super fucking miserable. Dieting on anabolics, especially if you're rushing, is way harder psychologically than dieting than drug-free. Um, the results are cooler if you can survive, but um, also it throws off your body water like crazy. Um, so what I would say is on anabolics, it's actually better to diet slower and simultaneously gain muscle while losing fat or diet slower but you were leaner to begin with because anabolics allow you to walk around leaner and not have, uh, you know, oh no, your hormones are off. It gives a shit. Your hormones are all exogenous anyway. So someone on anabolics could diet for 12 weeks but get to you know, start at 10% body fat as opposed to somebody's natural starting at 12 to 13 and needs to diet for 20 weeks or something like that. So I think the best approach to anabolics is dieting. Maybe not slower, but just at the same normal clip. But you get to eat more food, your workouts are better, you don't hold as much body water, you don't just freak out psychologically, all as well. So if you give me a person who needs to be in contest shape in six weeks and someone says, you either use anabolics or not, what are you going to do? For sure, use them. But then I would also put that person on a shitload of thyroid hormones and a shitload of DMP, and all of a sudden their life is absolutely no fun at all. Well, yeah, they get lean. Uh, uh, there's uh, Victor Martinez uh, had some pics like multiple years, five years ago. He was like, uh, he looked like he was 60 weeks out and was like five weeks away from showtime. And then he showed up to the show, like qualified for the Olympia, took like second or third. And they're like, how the fuck did you do that? He's like, I had to do some things that are not really a good idea. <laughs> uh, which means probably like a shitload of fat burgers. Your heart's like all the time. That's the real shit that kills you, right? Like over time for sure. So you know, can you use anabolics to diet faster? Yes. Is that a good face value idea? Absolutely not. Uh, I think Broderick would probably say almost the identical. Fantastic. I don't know if you have time for what I have remembered a question I was going to ask related to the sure. health question. It was just regarding kind of cardiovascular work. Uh, I know it's something that I see come up um, in terms of doing maybe some cardio in your off season as a bodybuilder. Obviously, we probably do it when we're dieting for contest. But in like an off season or just someone who's generally trying to be kind of as jacked as possible, they're trying to maximize muscle growth. So typically just a bodybuilder but they also is there do we need to do some cardio for health as well or is that going to take yeah, away totally. from maximizing no yeah i think there's a middle ground there where it actually boosts some health pretty well not optimally of course way more cardio yeah. would do that but also keeps you a little bit leaner and gets nutrient conditioning going a little bit maybe it reduces some stress so what i would say is like you know two to four times a week on your off season go for a 45 minute walk outside or even just go on the treadmill and listen to a podcast um Nothing too crazy. You get a little bit of a sweat going. Don't even your breathing super heavy. It'll keep you leaner. It'll keep you healthier, and you'll feel better. And your training will go better because you won't have as many lower back cramps. And you know, fat guy tired from the squat as opposed to muscle tired. You're like, I'm just too fat. This is awful. Um, it's less of that. So that's really cool. You do much more cardio. That's going to start to cost you muscle gains. But up to two to four sessions of you know, gee, 45 minutes a week of of cardio and you can split that up as much as you want uh you know walking outside walking the dogs playing some fun games um that's just a really good for your health and probably optimizes muscle growth or at least doesn't detract from it and uh makes you feel way better too you could end your mesocycle at five pounds less than you would have but with just as much muscle and five pounds less fat you know which means that when you start prep it's way easier so i don't think people should quit cardio completely just do much much less yeah 
And as a, just as a really quick example, or as a thought process, could someone just, if they didn't want to do formal cardio, could they just not be sedentary, make sure they get a decent step count in? Would that satisfy that criteria? That, that's actually by far the best. Thing. Right. Right. I was, for the purpose of that example, I was assuming that they already have a step count that seems sufficient. But, you know, a, a good way to increase step count is during you take a walk, right? Or like instead of like, maybe you want to go to like, uh, like an M&S to get, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, snacks for after workout. Chicken There's one that's really corn. close. That's right. Of course, of course, you're welcome, by the way. I can't believe they introduced you to shit in your country. So, um, so basically, there's one that's like a block away, and there's one that's four or five blocks away that's a nice day outside. Go for a walk, go to the farther one, go increase your step down, all be well. Um, if you're super fucking lazy on a mass phase, just get ready to get super fat. And then, Mesocycle cycle three, your training is going to be awful because you're going to be too fat to recover between sets. So you're going to have rest time and all this other crap. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for the Q&A, taking the time. I'm sure the listeners absolutely loved it. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to plug or tell anything people about. I'm not sure if you When does this go up? This will probably go out. Uh, this should go out this month, so maybe even next week. Oh, soon or already, probably soon, the Renaissance Periodization.com website is going to have revamped individual muscle guides for hypertrophy. Oh, yes. Fucking unbelievable. Each one is roughly 15 pages, about 7,000 words each. Um, and if there's 14 of them, we're going to release one a week, starting in probably late September, early October, and going through till January. Um, and they're going to be amazing. Super revamped, way more shit. It's going to be really good stuff. So look for me to post that on social media at some point or go to Renaissance and Google that. It's going to be super awesome. I saw the sample look really good. So yeah, definitely keep cool. your eyes out for that, guys. So thank you very much again, Mike. Thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you soon.